Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 28 through 40 here this morning. Which says this, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Hey, why are you untying it? Say, say this, Well, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Hey, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Ah, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Lord Jesus, give us revelation here this morning. Reveal to us, Lord, the information in this passage, Lord, the, the, the depths and the goodness and, and the, the things that we don't necessarily see on the, on the surface, Lord. Reveal to us what's going on. Reveal to us, God, what you experienced and the disciples experienced as they were doing all these things with you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us revelation of the deeper things, of the things beyond the things that happened, the, the implications, God, for our lives and your glory here today. Open our eyes, open our spirits by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be present with us, God, in this moment together, in this time together. Uh, let it be transformative to our lives and our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May have a seat. All right. So, triumphal entry. We've, we have now come to the triumphal entry. We'll get to you in a second. So, entitled my sermon here this morning, King Jesus. King Jesus. And if there's anything that we need in our, in our lives and our world today, it's King Jesus. Why? There is so... You look around us in our world today. There's so much suffering. So much going on. The world is suffering overall. I get news article after news article after news article, post after post on Facebook. You, you turn on the news and you hear it. I don't turn on the news because we don't have TV. But, you know... You know, turn on the TV and you get, you know, horror story after horror story. This is happening and this is happening. And this ar- this country is building up this arsenal of these kinds of weapons and these kinds of weapons. And, you know, now China's got a new weapon that, you know, the you know new me- medium range, you know, missile that's supposed to overwhelm our Navy's defenses and all sorts of hypersonic missiles and all these different things. And, you know, 4,000 4, vertical based missiles that people, you know, ships can launch them. Right, there's so much weaponry and so much destruction, so much, pot- and here's the thing: so much potential for vast and amounts of suffering, war that's going on right now in Ukraine, and all the people arming Ukrainians and the, and the Russians not willing to give up. Worry about stocks and retirement, financial markets in, in up, uproar. Right, you might be you know retired now and you're seeing your retirement dwindling. You might be, have been saving into a 401k and you're seeing that retirement worth less and less and less every day. Poverty, inflation, political unrest coming up on the midterm elections. And then we see division all over the place. COVID, right? You know, COVID fears, but also like the things that, are, that we're experiencing in the wake of these last two years of coronavirus and the, de- the devastation that it caused and the ripple effects of what it's still causing and the ripple effects of what the things that it did cause we're still experiencing and even inflated. Not the, it's not just the economy that's inflating. It is anger. It is anxiety. Suicide is off the charts. 
And Montana is number one per capita for suicide in the nation. And it's, we are suffering from a pandemic of fear as a result of the last couple of years. But also it was happening before that. It's nothing new. It's just been inflated. Fear of what? War. <laughs> We're afraid. Like All these articles are talking about the potential for suffering. And then that, that potential causes fear. Causes anxiety, causes unrest. I don't know what my what life is going to look like. I don't know what the what the next part. Then what is the next shoe that's going to drop? Right? What is the next shoe? What's going to happen in the stocks? I mean, we see the trajectory of the stocks going down and down. <clears throat> Retirement, inflation, poverty. Right? All these things. We have fear of what's coming, what's happening. Fear of political power. Each party is afraid of the other party being in power because it causes fear, because they don't, they don't have control, they don't have power, therefore they're anxious because they can't control it. They can't control their lives. They feel they can't control their own lives. Division. You know, fear of political. Division in politics. Division in families. Division in the church. Divisions. Anger. Malice. Strife. These are emotions that are not uncommon to humanity. We are, we're not the first ones to experience life and anxiety and worry and fear in the world. Nor are we going to be the last. If you look back on, on the earth's history, it is colored full of war, devastation, death, anxiety, fear, battling, fighting, warring, wrestling, and this is the culture in which we're reading this passage. This is why this proclamation that we're going to get into is so powerful because we are encountering a people that are so afraid and at the same time angry. Because that's the other thing that we have as, a, as, a, as an epidemic, as a pandemic in our world today is anger. Suffering, fear, anger. Anger has been inflated. I just read an article yesterday that talked about how fast food or you know, people who work in the, in the service industry, there's been like 11 million reports of just, you know, of, 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 of just negative encounters of people who are angry at the retail officer. Starbucks, there's witness after witness after witness. They interviewed these people and there are people who come to the windows or come, come to the cashier and realize that Starbucks has, has been having to raise their prices because inflation, we all have to suffer from it, right? They're raising their prices and the barista gets yelled at, gets the whole brunt of the person's anger. The guy who raised the prices in corporate ain't, ain't hearing anything. The barista is encountering the brunt. You guys in the service industry, you guys are approaching the brunt of people's anger. Left and right. The Jewish people were angry and afraid. And they were suffering. Mass taxation. Mass prices. Mass abuse by the Romans. They called it the Roman occupation for a reason. They, they didn't view them as a legitimate force coming in. They viewed them as this, this people who just wielded their power over the powerless. And they were angry at them. They wanted them to die. They were looking for the king to go out and annihilate the Romans. They wanted the Romans, they wanted Jerusalem to be covered in the blood of Romans so that they could have their city back again. Oftentimes that's how we feel about our other political party. We want the streets to just be strewn with the bloods of fill in the blank. The, pe- the Jewish people during this moment know how you feel. And then some. The Jewish people were under political and military authority that was oppressive and they were suffering and afraid. People always talk about the political climate when talking about going to, to visit Israel today. You know, is it good? Is it bad? All right. I assume that that's probably what was keeping people from going to the, you know, at this time. Well, should we go to, should we go to Jerusalem for the Passover? I don't know. The Romans are still in power. I heard last week that there was an uprising and Barabbas got arrested. So, you know, they might still be angry, you know. So maybe we should, we should sit this one out. Kind of like, you know, today, if you go to Israel, you actually are looking at the news. Like, what's going on in Israel? 
Should we go to Israel for a visit? Right. And so I went in 2011 and my uncle actually was the, uh, was the risk manager for Baylor University. And so he went on the trip the year before we went or the, the fall before the year that we went to see and check the political climate. Were there areas that were, that he felt safe for us to go into? Right. And, you know, we felt pretty safe because every Jewish site that we went to, there was a whole slew of people with like mass machine guns, you know, tied to them because everyone who's in Israel, uh, once you turn 18, you spend two years in the military and you're trained to fight, but you give, you're given a tour of all the different historical f- sites. So we're just surrounded by armaments and people with, you know, with machine guns and stuff. But so <clears throat> gauging the risk. Because Jerusalem, especially at this at this point, was a very kind of you know wavering place, you know, safety wise. <clears throat> so the, the temperature was one of fear, anxiety, anger that was just waiting to explode, and the Romans knew this too, and that's why during the time of Passover they would up their ante, they would up the amount of Roman soldiers in the city to make sure that those. Jews stayed in their place, right? The Jewish people knew and understand. Um, but it's, in, it's important to remember, for us today, for us, for them, it's important for us to remember the whole temperature, to remember that spiritual warfare is the lens by which to view the world. We view the world as, you know, the, the, the battle that we have is not against flesh and blood. The battle we have oftentimes is in our heart and our mind against other humans. But God wants to remind us always that our anger, that our malice, that our, that we should, Enoch should not be afraid, afraid ever because God is our, what? King. And the battle has been won. And no matter what happens in the world, our desire is to love and to desire to see people come to salvation in Jesus Christ. It is only it is against the people's captive captors that we are angry, not against the captive themselves. So our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces at, wade, at, at war that are raging, waging war against God. That oppression, suffering, and fear—it's the enemy waging war against God. We are either complicit tools of the enemy or we are victims. Or we are co-warriors, co-laborers, as the Bible says, with Christ to wrestle with the enemy of God and his, and his followers, his angels, his demons, his spirits. The greatest cause of atheism in the world and agnosticism in the world today is, is just that, is the war battling and waging and the enemy. And the enemy has two things. It is both the uh, deceiver, the liar, is his name, right? Satan, and devil, diabolos, which means accuser. So he'll trip you up, make you sin, and then, and then turn around and accuse you for it. Oh, you should do this, do this, do this. Ah, you, look at you. Right? And so he does this all over the place. He is the liar and the accuser, the liar, the accuser, the deceiver, and the shamer, the guilter. And so that's why it's like the greatest cause of atheism and agnosticism, this is unbelief, keeping the world in unbelief and luring us away from faithfulness to God in this world today, is those two things I was talking about. Fear and suffering. He wants to lie to you and make you afraid and suffer and accuse you. But he keeps people in darkness by saying, if God is so good, if God is so powerful, why is there suffering? Why are there the things you have to be afraid of? There was a, a, a conversation I had actually yesterday one of the most amazing conversations I've had in, in, in a while when it came to a time with an unbeliever. Um, we'll call him Brian. We met at a coffee shop. And I was sitting down with him. And uh, he uh, so he noticed my Bible and I was preparing my sermon for today. And uh, he asked, he's like, oh, are you a pastor? I was like, 
yeah, I'm just I'm preparing my sermon for tomorrow. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And he's like, oh, cool, yeah, yeah. I was like, do you, you go to church here, here in Billings? You know? Uh, he's like, oh no, I went to uh, went went I went to the Lutheran church growing up, and then I went to a Catholic high school. But I just, you know, he's like, I believe that there's a God somewhere out there, but I believe that you can't really know Him. And like, man made all sorts of religions, so any kind of religious expression is a creation of man, and therefore no religion can be trustworthy. I'm like, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> it was just interesting. Because I kept asking him questions, and then he he transitioned pretty pretty seamlessly from that conversation to and my 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 grandmother or great or or mom is suffering from Alzheimer's, and it's really a really big struggle, and I'm suffering because I have this disease, this this thing that's going on in my life, and so so I was like, so is it fair to say that the reason you don't believe in God is because you're suffering and you've experienced suffering? And you just can't reconcile that suffering with a good and powerful God. He said, yeah. Because he transitioned almost seamlessly from telling me that he didn't believe that God loved people to suffering. I picked up, I was like, oh, I'm hearing that. But then I told him about this whole concept of spiritual warfare. It's like, it's not that the Bible said that no other gods exist. That the, that the gods of these different religions around the world, like Hinduism and Buddhism and you know Egyptian pantheon and the Greek and Roman gods and all these things, it didn't ever say that they don't exist. It said our God is the God above the gods, above those gods. Egypt, he says, he did all these miracles and these plagues, judgments against what? The gods of the Egyptians. So it wasn't the plague against the Egyptians, it was the plague against the Egyptian gods against the demons, against the powers and the authority in the unseen realm. The Bible is chock full of expressions. Jesus even said, we'll get to it when, when we get to the resurrection, but Jesus even said, you know, they were like, we thought it was a ghost. Jesus was like, no, 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 no. Ghosts don't have bodies, guys. Ghosts don't have bodies. Hmm. Jesus didn't say there's no such thing as ghosts a.k.a. demons, fallen angels, spirits in the unseen realm, right? There's a whole, that's a whole other series of sermons. <laughs> but the reality is, is that all these other religions have power. New Age paganism, Celtic paganism, Nordic paganism has power. Occultism, Wiccanism, they have power. Demonic power. That is real power. But I, I brought this up. So I brought this up and said, those gods are there, but the God of the Bible says that this is the God who created everything. And He has authority and rule and power. And in the end, all those other gods lose. And here's the, another kicker as well. He said, you talked about suffering. Our God is the only God that promised that He would be there in the midst of our suffering. That he would not, you know, because other gods demand that we worship them and sacrifice for them, and maybe they might be won over enough to give us some benefits. But our God is the only one that says, when you're suffering, take joy because I'm with you. I will walk with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And guess what? It's nothing that you did for me. In fact, I don't even need you to do anything for me because I give you life and breath and everything. What God do you want to worship? It's not about what religion is true. It's what God is the good God that you want to worship that is the most powerful God. Which God is the King of all the gods? Which God is the Lord Almighty? And I, I, say, I believe that Jesus is that God who says He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God above all gods, the most powerful, the most high, the almighty Yahweh Lord God of the universe. And Brian was like, oh, I got a really good point. And we had a great rest of the conversation. I felt like he was starting to encounter that love of Jesus, the presence of God. We worship Jesus because he, because our king is Jesus. The triumphal entry was the key element to Jesus' Passion Week that showed us his kingship. Um, it's talked about in all four Gospels. 
So let's look at that. Let's look at our passage here this morning in light of all this stuff. Um, let's talk about it. Jerusalem! We're here! Yay! We've, we're finally arriving! Um, it's time! We've arrived. The journey to Jerusalem that began in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 51, is finally coming to a an end. Coming to a close. The culmination of Jesus' entire earthly ministry is coming to a head. Uh, so what's happening? So first off, I want to make a little correction. So last week I was talking about how, you know, the, the donkey and then the cult, like this the cult, like this uh, horse that hadn't been written. I want to correct that. Um, I, I, I take my teaching very, very seriously. And so when I misspeak, I want to correct myself. That was not a horse. It was a donkey. Because the prophecy in Zechariah is that he would, which we'll read in, in a little bit, is that Jesus would come in riding on a donkey on a donkey's colt. And so there's 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 a, a donkey and a donkey's colt, colt, not colt, colt, colt. <laughs> that would be a really weird cult, a donkey cult. Anyway, um, but so so not a horse. Um, but so here so here we are. We're coming into what the Bible says: Bethphage and Bethany. Um, Jesus had you know a been there before, probably several times because it was right there next to Jerusalem, uh, and B had raised Lazarus from death there. This is where Lazarus takes takes place, is, is in Bethany. Um, and this is most likely during the time of this of this time that we're talking about. He comes into Bethany and Bethphage. It's just Luke doesn't account, doesn't write about it, but John does. But that time where Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead is here. This is where it happens. It's right before the triumphal entry. Um, and so um, <clears throat> this is, they're joining the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, but here's the thing: not just um, not just them, but you know, remembering not, not just the, the pilgrims that were coming from all over the empire, but there were over 120 of Jesus's disciples making this last leg of the trip together, right? And so we have all the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, but we also have uh, 120 of Jesus's disciples. And here's a little, little interesting little thing that Jesus tells his disciples to go and get these animals together for the last leg of the trip. Why? This is the only time in all of Scripture that Jesus has recorded riding an animal. And he needs it for two miles downhill? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but because this is what he was trying to get them to see. So if you turn with me to Psalm 118 real quick. Psalm 118 is the reason for this passage. Um, so here, so just a little bit of a little bit of uh, introduction. So this is a psalm of victory and praise to God, to the God who defeats all of His enemies and establishes His kingdom. So we're talking about the spiritual warfare. The Pharisees and the Jewish people quite well understood spiritual warfare. They had their own exorcists. They had a whole spiritual army, right? So they recognized and they were giving victory and praise to the God who defeats all of his enemies and establishes his kingdom. And this is what this psalm is about. Uh, this is a psalm of ascent. This is the song that they would sing during the Passover on their way to, well, on the way up to Jerusalem, right? So this would be the song, the psalm that they would sing together as they were coming up to the temple coming up to Jerusalem. Here's what it says. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, His His faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His faithful love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His faithful love endures forever. I called to the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and put me in a spacious place. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. Are you feeling this as people who are angry, who are afraid, who are suffering, are singing as they're going to their Creator God on the Temple Mount in His presence in Jerusalem? Are you hearing this? Are you feeling this? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on the Romans who hate me, on fill in the blank. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. Turn off the TV. Turn off social media. Stop trusting in humanity for even what you're supposed to think about things. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles or the talking heads. All the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surround me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There are shouts and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. Hallelujah. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Huh, I think I've heard that quoted somewhere in the New Testament. This became from the Lord. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, I used to sing a song like that, an old hymn. Are you hearing some of these familiar things? Right? Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. And he who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. There's our, our context right there. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the temple sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. This is the Passover sacrifice. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Amen. I love the reading of God's Word. Can you feel their joy? Can you feel the wrestling like they want to just explode in joy but they're like, ah, but those darn Romans are still here. Who is going to rise up and give us victory? Who is going to give me alleviation for my fear? Because as we'll learn, Jesus came not to give alleviation from the Romans, but to give alleviation to the fear of the Romans. The psalm was sung to remember that Yahweh is the true God. That He would send the Messiah to deliver them. They believe from, you know, of course, the occupation as though flesh and blood were their worst enemies that God needed to defeat. But it was the fear, it was the enemy of Satan and his angels that needed to be defeated. So no matter what occupying forces were over you, you would be able to endure with joy and gladness and peace and love no matter what. And we've seen that over the last 2,000 years. No matter who the, you know, Christianity has been under, it has thrived. In fact, it's thrived better when it's been persecuted. It thrives better when it's not in prominence. Authentic Christianity. Not that we want persecution, right? No. But it, it will endure. This is, the, this is the rock. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the rock that Jesus has built his church on and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Will never prevail against the church. There's so many different things. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the coming, the coming weeks throughout the rest of the summer because the, the backdrop of the crucifixion is Passover. The backdrop of this is coming to Passover. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem during the Passover which celebrates the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But Jesus is coming to bring God's salvation, God's great Exodus out of the world. We'll be, you know, talking a lot more about, like I said. Um, but hey, here's a here's here's kind of a fun here, spoiler alert. Right? Jesus, what? Jesus is not really a spoiler because Jesus has already told him three times. Jesus is coming to do what? To die, to be buried, and to raise. But Jesus' mission is to die. That wasn't the oops. Didn't see that coming. Jesus is like, no, no, this is, I made this happen. This is my plan. This was God's, God's plan. <laughs> Not Pilate's or the Sanhedrin. The road 
between these two events, though, from the triumphal entry to the, to the crucifixion of Jesus, is packed full of beautiful, powerful, and mysterious moments and events. So look at the backdrop of this. So this crowd was made up of mostly Jesus' disciples. Um, if you look at this, it's, it's Jesus' people are in, the, are in this passage. Um, <coughs> because they're not quite to Jerusalem, into Jerusalem. They're here. Something going on? Sorry, I was like, by my zipper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I just saw the weird face. I was like, what? Am I command done? <laughs> oh, man. But, but it's interesting to, like, just to see the juxtaposition between, these, between the crowds. So as we see in this, pa- in this passage here, it says disciples that are coming out. Let's see if we can find that here. Uh, going to the village, la, 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 la. Um, went down the whole, a whole crowd. What does it say? Verse 37. Now he came near the path to the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of his disciples began to praise God joyfully. Right. So we see this, you know, it's, I've always kind of heard it said that like, you know, the crowd who had praised him on, on Good Friday would, or on, on uh, Triumphal you know, Palm Sunday would be the ones that would betray him and yell for his crucifixion just a few, less than a week later. Different crowds. These are different crowds altogether. The crowd even, I would even say that there are three crowds. There's the crowd that was following, that was there during the triumphal entry. There was the crowd that called for his crucifixion. And there was a separate crowd on the Via Dolorosa when Jesus was going to the way of the cross. Going to... And that one, you know, like you see in the movies, like all the people like jeering and yelling and throwing stuff at Jesus. I don't think that that was accurate. I think it was more, like it even says, like there were people, you know, mourning and crying and wailing. There's probably more of one of a somber silence. You could just hear the, the scrape of the cross as it bumped along the dirt road on the bricks. You could hear the, the whips on Jesus' back. You can hear the heavy breathing because it was so quiet. This is a crowd. This is not that crowd. In fact, many of the people in this crowd could have been the, the ones that were in that mourning crowd as Jesus was being led away to be crucified. It is not the crowd that called for his crucifixion. This crowd was one of celebration. You can almost even feel that with Jesus as he's coming down the road on this, on this donkey. The juxtaposition of knowing what he's going to do, but trying to experience and trying to feel the praises of his people, the love and the adoration of his disciples, and the celebration that, yes, he is coming to be their king. He's coming to be the prince of peace. He's coming to be their salvation. And it's going to be a hard work to accomplish. But he's enjoying this. And so maybe this is what's causing and stirring him to endure. Causing him... I remember like when he's dying on the cross, he's like, I remember seeing Jesus. I remember seeing Peter's face weeping with joy because he knew who I was. The love and adoration that he was giving me when I was riding on the colt. I remember Mary Magdalene. I remember the seven demons that I cast out of her and her dancing as she, as she was dancing along the way and she threw her cloak on the road in front of me. I was waving the palm branch and celebrating. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm riding this donkey because I am their king. And I'm going to accomplish my work so that I can be their eternal king. This is echoing Psalm 118. You can probably even see like that. It wasn't just the, probably that line that they were quoting. It may have just been an indication. Luke is just trying to tell us this is the song that they were singing. This is what they were singing. The king bringing peace. You can even hear it in, in the, the declaration, the angel's declaration when Jesus was born. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, crowds, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to whom, uh, to, to, peace on earth to people he favors. And also they remembered the prophecy, prophecy about the coming Messiah from Zechariah 9. 
Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why were they doing this? They were giving, they were singing praise joyfully, praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all what? The miracles they had seen. These, this group was eyewitnesses to everything that they had seen. And what, remember, the, what's, what's kind of the, the, the underlying thing that this 120 had just seen and who's now walking with them? Lazarus. Lazarus is walking in this procession after dying. So much so that all the religious rulers were wanting to kill him because he was a walking testimony of God's kingship, of God's authority in Jesus. And they wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to kill, kill the miracle. The disciples were this... I love seeing this picture. Like, you know, like I said, Mary Magdalene and Peter and Lazarus and, and Martha and like all these different people that, that you, you see as part of this 120 crowd. Barnabas, which will find, you know, the son of encouragement. Matthias. All these different things. Zacchaeus, possibly. The, the you know, blind Bartimaeus. All this whole hodgepodge of weird people that were, what, transformed by the experience they had with Jesus. That's who we are. That's who we are as a church. It's a weird hodgepodge of walking testimonies of the kingship of Jesus Christ. I love it. It is a beautiful picture. And I, get, I, I love that I get to see it every Sunday just like this. I get to look in each one of your eyes and see an awesome, beautiful walking testimony of Jesus Christ. And it is beautiful. This is beautiful. You are each living stones. Living stones of the, of the temple of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? The rocks will cry out. This last thing, that's, you know, this discussion. So, because not not only were the 120 disciples on the road, but like you said, there were during this time, um, you know, the, the Jerusalem just got packed. Big event. Have you ever been to like a big event, like a football game, a conference, or you know, in a stadium somewhere? You know, even like even bigger than like an MSU, like you know something like you know, you know oh, the Mariners, you know, over in Seattle or Seahawks or something huge. Like, I got to go you know, bull riding. I got to go to you know Dallas Cowboys Stadium, right for the for the very first football game ever in in, in Cowboy the new Cowboys Stadium. Go Cowboys! You've been to several of these things. I went to Baylor games, all sorts of stuff. What is the number one thing you remember from after traffic? Oh my gosh, the traffic. I mean, just trying to get out of the, your seat and get down. You're like, you know, <laughs> every time I'm in, in one of these big crowds, I'm walking along going, <laughs> of course, I get the chuckles from people, people around me. Right? But Because we're just like filing through, just like, you know, single file. We're kind of bumping up against people and, you know, where are my kids? Where are my kids? Oh, we're good. Get on my shoulders. Yeah. But like, the traffic leaving the stadium. The traffic to try to go to the bathroom after the game. Trying to, you know, walk into the cars. Trying not to get hit by cars. You know, trying to get out and back your car out of the parking spot in the first place, right? And then trying to get through traffic and then get on the freeway and all of a sudden it's just, ah, oh, trying to get home. Ah, oh, over there. But imagine that, you know, this, this, the streets, because this was the main, the main road that went into Jerusalem and we're right there where everything is funneling in these last couple miles. People coming in from the Dead Sea, people coming in from Galilee, people coming in from back east. And they're filing in this road. And this was the road that the faithful came on because it didn't go through dirty Samaria. You can't go through dirty Samaria going to a festival. So everyone was coming this road, all the way up to the, from you know, the Roman Empire and all the, the Decapolis. This road was probably packed with people, not just his disciples. So there were witnesses galore, hundreds if not thousands of people hearing what was going on, seeing what was going on. And most likely there were Pharisees in the crowd walking along. And they keep hearing, they're like, ah, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. We've been hearing this all of it. You're going to get yours. We're going to tell the chief priests. Which is interesting. This is the last time you hear about the Pharisees in all the Gospels. Last time you hear about it. Because when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, his battle is against the chief priests. And the, and, the, and the leadership, the authorities in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are there. 
There's like, oh, he he going to get it now. <laughs> this indicates that uh, there, you know, the Pharisees are traveling, but so there's two different maybe reasons why we hear his react, the Pharisees' reaction like this. Either one, because they're annoyed and angry at the display. They're like, oh, he is not the king. You need to cut that crap out right now. Heretic, heretic, he's going to get his. Or two, as well, maybe both end, but also that they were afraid. They're not only angry that they were trying, that he was posing to be the Messiah, because it was clear, clear picture that they were saying that this is the Messiah, the king coming in, but also that they were afraid that the Romans would hear about it and bring in the army, maybe shut down the festival. They wouldn't be able to even observe Passover. Maybe they were afraid that this would be looked at as, as an act of insurrection by the Jewish people again. But it's interesting how Jesus phrases this. He's like, no, I'm not going to buy into your fear and I'm not going to buy into your deception and your lies of, of my identity. I know who I am and it's good that I'm doing this. But it's interesting, like this, this phrase, the rocks will cry out, isn't like this like weird thing where like rocks would look little legitimately like, oh, no, no, he's Jesus, he's God, he's you. It's like not this like weird thing of like rocks actually like, you know, talking. This is actually an indictment that Jesus is saying against the Pharisees. This is actually a punch you in the face with reality and, and uh, conviction. Uh, because basically like in the scriptures, anything that is um, like non-human <laughs> that, that talks is an indictment. Like whenever it speaks, it's actually speaking against something or someone. Like for instance, you know, like Adam's blood or Adam's blood. What did you, what did God say to, to Cain? Your, your, your brother's blood, Abel, not Adam, sorry. Abel, yeah. Abel's blood is what? Crying out to me from the ground. Look at Jacob's stone. It's also an, an indictment it, it, or is a, it is a proclamation. Uh, from God, so or for human, you know, humankind. So Jacob Stone, he placed um, where he had the vision of Jacob, you know, Jacob ladder coming down and stuff. He placed a stone there uh, as an as an act of remembrance. It was a testimony. This stone was a testimony. This is where this thing happened. This is where God spoke. God revealed these things. It's a divine revelation, a picture of a covenant. So this was Jacob making a covenant with God. This was the, the, you know, the stone tablets in the Ark of the Covenant were made out of stone. Um, the foundation stone of the temple. Um, and then we see the, you know, the stone, the 12 stones from the, from the Jordan River that were put together into an, to a, a picture of the covenant God's people had with God. But it's a, it's a, it's a sign of a covenant, whether kept or broken. It was also, it was the place where, you know, the, where, you know, Jacob put his rope, his, his stone, this isn't like, you know, some little itty based like stone. He put a stone. It, because this was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and the temple was placed on top of this stone. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies during the, even this time of Jesus. First temple. Sorry. It sat during the first temple. It wasn't there during the second temple. Um, but... It's interesting. There is also this passage in uh, Genesis 31, and this is where this is kind of the context of what we're talking about here. So, if you guys know this, the story of, of Jacob and and Laban, so Laban is the father of Leah and Rachel, and he uh, you know works for Laban for seven years in order to get his daughter Rachel. Well, Laban tricks him and he sleeps with Leah in the middle of the night instead of Rachel and at their wedding. He wakes up, he's like, ah, what? Who are you? Wow, no, ah, man. And so then, because he got tricked by Laban. And Laban is a trickster. Laban is like, a, how can I just get as much as possible out of this guy? So he gets another seven years out of him and gives him his daughter, Rachel. And then, after, after the seven years are completed, he's like, all right, cool, I've got my wives, I've got my children, I've got all of my sheep that I created that's a whole other fun story. Talk to Amberlynn about that. Uh, breeding and stuff like that with, you know, with the sheep. Um, but so he takes all of his flocks, all of his herds, and he leaves. Because he's like, I've fulfilled my time. Laban, I'm out. He's like, no, you can't take my daughter. You know, your grandparents are like, you don't take my daughter away from me. My grandkids. It's not the daughters, the grandkids. So it's grandkids. You know, don't take my grandkids away. You know, 
And so then, he, so Laban chases him down, and he like brings him back, and he's about to try to kill him and stuff. And he's like, "You have nothing against me. I brought, I took nothing that was not mine." You look. He looked at everywhere, and Laban couldn't find anything that belonged to him. He was just mad and angry. So what did Jacob do? He's like, "We need to create a covenant between you and I because you're ridiculous." That's why it's where the contract comes today, right? Because we don't trust that the other person will will, will satisfy the, the the covenant, the contract, right? So we're out of contract. So this this passage here is all about them creating this basically the first contract. <laughs> then Jacob became incensed and brought charges against Laban. What is my crime? He said to Laban. What is my sin that you have pursued me? You searched all my possessions. Have you found anything of yours? No. Put it here before my relatives and yours and let them decide between the two of us. I've been with you these 20 years. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams from your flock. I did not bring you any of the flock torn by wild beasts. I myself bore the loss. You demanded payment for me for which was stolen, for which was stolen by day or by night. There I was, the heat consumed by day and the frost by night, and she and sleep fled from my eyes for twenty years. You know, I can just see this guy's just like, all right, I'm pissed. Like this is the end of it. Like the end of my rope. Last last straw, dude. You know, just unleashing on labor. All the things he's been wanting to say for twenty years, right? You know, fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages ten friggin' times. It's, that's the Allen version. Um, if the God of my father and the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been with me, certainly now you would have sent me off empty-handed. But God has seen my affliction and my hard work, and he issued his verdict last night. Last night. Then Laban answered Jacob, The daughters are, are my daughters, the children my children, the flocks my flocks. Everything you see is mine, but what can I do today for these daughters of mine or for the children they have borne? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between the two of us. So Jacob, what? Picked out a stone and set it up as a marker. Then Jacob said to his relatives, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a mound. Then they ate there by the mound, in its presence. Laban named the mound Yeger Sahudutha, but Jacob named it Galid, which is the... So one was the, the the Canaanite, the pagan religion uh, for the place, Mound of Stones. But Galid is Hebrew for Mound of Stones. Then Laban said, this mound is a witness between you and me today. That is what, so for them, stones bore witness to covenants. There's a piece of wood right now at our brothers and at our sister church, you know, brothers and sisters church called the River church it's a little little thing of wood that sits on the stage and it was part of a tree that was struck by lightning during the red river revival and it witnessed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to faith in jesus christ because of the proclamation of the word of god the worship of his people to the lord god and it witnessed this this tree bore witness and it was struck by lightning it was part of the what caused this great revival and so there's a there's a chunk of it in their in their church. It's a covenant. It's a it's a stone that is a symbol of that it that it listened to the Red River revival. It listened to the gospel. And so for them in this passage, Jesus is saying the rocks are going to cry out. What are they going to say about your faithfulness to God? Shuts them up pretty quick. So this is Jesus actually saying, oh, you want to silence my disciples? Let's hear what the rocks have to say. They will accuse you and what? Glorify me. Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of Glory. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to conquer sin and death, to deliver us from the great enemy, Satan, Death, the power of the grave, the forces of darkness in the unseen realm, the power behind the Roman Empire, and to give us all power and all authority by pouring out His Spirit upon us. This is the context behind Acts chapter 2, Peter's great sermon. But basically, he wraps up this passage. Go ahead and write this passage down here. This is basically Peter's whole sermon. I'm not going to read it. 
Um, but but write, no, write this note down because this would be a great sermon to read for you today. Um, but here's, here's the closing lines. He says, God has raised Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. This is, of course, post-resurrection. Therefore, since he has exalted, he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That he has elevated Jesus to the position of King of kings and Lord of lords. Because our king is Jesus. Jesus came to accomplish victory over suffering, over fear, over death. To be the God who comforts. To be the God who is present. To bring us into fellowship with him because he loves us. This is why I told my, you know, my new friend yesterday, our God is the God of all gods. He is the most powerful and he is the most loving. And he is there in the midst of our suffering. He is there in the midst of our fears to be the Prince of Peace, to be our comforter so that we don't have to freak out because he is in charge. No matter what happens, I can rejoice. I read, read to him Second Peter, or I'm sorry, James chapter 1. So rejoice, my brothers when you, when you, and sisters, when you encounter trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect. Understand this. We serve the God of the Exodus. We serve the God who judged the gods of the Egyptians. We serve the God of the resurrection, the judge over what is evil. He judged the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness, the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. You want to know who our king is? I'll give you a picture of who our king is. Who is our king? Our king, I was in the spirit, this is John, on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was speaking to me. Then I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool. Hey, I'm godlike. I'm like Jesus. I'm Jesus-like. White as snow. And his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it was, as it is fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of the cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what it is there, what, what will take af- place after this. Um, and then uh, Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there in heaven I was an open door. The first voice that I, that, I, that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. Flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder came from the throne. That's Jesus. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Not just a sea of cloaks spread on a road, but a sea a sea of glass as crystal. Four living creatures covered their eyes in front and in back and all around the throne on each side. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four, four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes all around in, and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne, the one seated on the throne, and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because You have created all things and by Your will they exist and were created. Revelation 19, to wrap this up. And I want to leave us with this. It says this in 1911. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a fiery flame and many crowns are on his head. He had a name written which no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike down the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our King. Our King is Jesus. He is no longer humble and riding on a donkey. He is seated right now on His throne in His kingdom promising, if you place your faith in Me where I am, you will be also. We're living in that not yet. We're living in hope of that. But not a hope that is not fulfilled. Ephesians 2, remember? We who are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Jesus Christ. What? And seated us, now, seated, not as going to seat us, but seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. We are seated with Jesus. Our spirit is with God today. That's why when we join together, it's not just bringing our bodies into the same place physically. It's bringing our spirits together. We are already separated from this world. We are in the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. We just come together physically to remember that and to encourage one another with that presence. Being in God's presence together. Being in the presence of what? Who? Our King, Jesus. And that's why we gather. We can read passages like this, knowing what's coming in the, in the passages to come with His crucifixion, His torture, His trial, His crucifixion. But always remembering not just His resurrection, but also remembering now His ascension and, our, and His presence with us today. The rider on the donkey back then is sitting next to you right here today and is seating, seated with you every day. And you can turn in prayer and say, Lord, Lord, I'm with you. I'm in your presence and this is good. This is beautiful, God. Good, God. May that be how we live our lives. In the presence who was not riding on a donkey and who will ride on a white horse. You are seated with Him in His kingdom today. How does that change your life? How does that change your week? How does that change every moment of our days? And how we encounter this world around us? Lord Jesus, I pray that You would open our spirits, Lord, to receive, to walk with You, God, in the cool of the morning. Lord, give us the vision of Your your rule and your reign 
and that we are seated with you. Encourage us with your truth. Encourage us with the, encourage us with the truth that you are with us. You are the God of comfort. You are the all-powerful God. We don't have to fear or be afraid or be angry or fear suffering, Lord, because you are with us. It doesn't matter who is in charge in our country. It doesn't matter what empires your church are under. Lord, we can endure all things through the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ and be a voice of truth, to be a voice of peace, to be a voice of love and power and authority in this world both seen and unseen, God. Help us to use our voice to proclaim life and truth and grace and love, to welcome the captives and to war against their captors in the unseen realm. Because you have given us that power and authority. You walk with us in that power to rescue people from darkness. Go with us, Lord. Draw us in each day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.